tonight I want to read another story from um, How Can I Help, Ram Dass's book, where I read the story about the black man who was dying in the hospital. And there's another story that I find very touching and very inspiring. And I'd like to read that and see what comes, what kind of uh, inspiration comes from that to go into together. But I want to start with the story, this very short story from Anthony DeMello. It's a story he tells in his book on awareness. A gentleman knocks on his son's door. Jamie, he says, wake up. Jamie answers, I don't want to get up, Papa. The father shouts, get up, you have to go to school. Jamie says, I don't want to go to school. Why not, asks the father. Three reasons, says Jamie. First, because it's so dull. Second, the kids tease me. And third, I hate school. And the father says, well, I'm going to give you three reasons why you must go to school. First, because it is your duty. Second, because you are 45 years old. And third, because you are the headmaster. (laughs) (laughs) So he says, wake up. Wake up. <laughs> so in a way that's a message for us. Like wake up. You know, life is passing by. <laughs> and that's what we're here for, is to wake up. Can't stay in bed. We're grown up now. <laughs> we have to get on with things. <clears throat> So here's the story which will bring about this point as well. When I lost my vision, I had been very self-sufficient and together. I was raising five children, I was working, I was volunteering in my community. I was independent enough to be contemplating a divorce from a bad marriage. I'd even give an attorney $500 just before I had to go into the hospital. I'd begun to find myself knocking things over and stumbling around. I went to an ophthalmologist, then a neurologist, then a radiologist, then a neurosurgeon. And finally a doctor said, you have a growth in your brain. If you don't have surgery, it will continue to grow and it will take your life. Just like that. The operation took seven and a half hours. The doctor said he almost lost me twice. He'd removed a tumor the size of a hen's egg. All I could see was the faintest bit of light. It didn't hit me till I got home. I didn't recognize myself. I went into the hospital with long hair. I came out with short. I went in at 145 pounds, I came out at 175 wearing my mother's dress. I went in and could see, I left and couldn't. It wasn't me. And things were bad at home. 
I couldn't get a divorce now. I was too dependent. I tried to do things for myself, but it often just created more trouble. My youngest daughter didn't want to be seen on the street with me. She was so ashamed, and I felt so bitter. But I kept pushing my feelings away. What had happened? Why me? I just wanted out of there. One nice fall day, I told my husband I was going out. I went down the elevator and out of the house. I got to the corner and just stopped. I stood there, expecting any minute he'd come down and join me. He never came down. I just stood there on the corner. A lot happened on that corner. I saw my past life. I recalled how lonely and helpless I'd felt as a little girl. And there I was now, just like a child again, only with five of my own. I stayed there a long time. Finally, I said to myself, well, here you are, and there's no place to go. It's time you brought a little help into your life. So I went into rehabilitation, and I told them everything I felt. I gave them everything. I gave them my shame and my anger and my fear. I felt it was the truth. And if it was the truth, then how could I be helpless? You don't suffer from the truth. The truth sets you free. Of course it was hard work coming to terms with change. But after a while, you have nothing left to hide. You want to bring it all out. You want to make room to receive help. And when you're, re when you're with a lot of people who are also trying to do that, you get a lot of support. Us blind folks, working together. The more I felt that, the more I found myself beginning to offer help as much as I asked for it. I met a young man there who was blind from birth. He'd never had a birthday party. So I baked him a cake and organized a party. He blew out the candles he couldn't see. He was delirious with joy. It was grand. I felt so happy. I had come from that lost blind person on the corner to someone who had seen a need and done something about it. I've told people something that sounds a little cruel. Everyone should experience temporary blindness. To see how our vision can give us such hang-ups how we judge and condemn, and what that does to us all. Like that boy with the birthday cake, there was a blind girl he had fallen for. Then someone said she was unattractive. He stopped seeing her. It brought tears to my eyes. He'd been seeing just fine. But when you begin to see with the inner eye, that inner eye everyone has, it all changes. Everyone is human. Everyone is God's child. Everyone is helpless, one way or another. And everyone is helpful too. We're all here for each other. That's how it is. And we all have something to give, no matter our condition. So now when I work with handicapped people, or anyone really, I find I have a special understanding to share. 
That's really all I have to offer. It's hard to put it into words. It's just, I understand, that's all. And yet, as sure or secure as that may sound, I don't think you're ever really secure. What is security? You can lose it in a flash, I know. And I still get shaky. So I have a little prayer that the Lord will send me someone to help me along the way on my subway journey every day and that he'll send someone I can share my faith and strength with too. Both things. That's how I set off to work and it usually happens. I think there's a lot of things in that story for us to reflect on. Not only for our time here, but as we leave, as we begin our journey outside. Really reflecting on the truth of who we are. Not kidding ourselves. But maybe really facing our limitation. You know, as I was saying, so so much of the spiritual path or the spiritual journey can be a setup of some kind of ideal, idealistic way to be or special experiences to have. But I think that that really misses the point. I think that the journey is more about really seeing who we are in all of our limitations and what real joy that can bring because then we're not trying to make ourselves into something that we're not. We can just really rest in that simplicity and that ordinariness of who we are. It's like when we stop pushing it all away as this woman said, she stopped pushing it all away and then something very wonderful happened for her. Her whole life opened up in a way before the operation, before the, she was stricken with the illness. Her life was in terrible shape. But something really beautiful started to happen. Once she was able to face the real trauma of the operation and coming to terms with the blindness and feeling, really feeling the feelings that were happening for her around that, something really wonderful happened. She started seeing in a whole new way. I mean, it's a wonderful metaphor as well because in a way she really didn't even need her eyes. There was a whole new kind of waking up waking up to something that really doesn't depend on this body functioning in any particular way. Whether it's all together in a particular kind of way. Sometimes we think we have to wait until we get to a certain point in our understanding or our evolution or our 
sense of strength in ourselves before we can actually go out and start to help. But I don't think that it's really like that. I think at any point we have something we can share. At any point in our own growth and our own development, there's plenty that we've learned. Plenty that we've already discovered from our own series of life events and our pain in that. And it seems from what we learn from our own pain and our own difficulties, we know it's the very thing other people are going through too. And so we can sit with them, we can listen, we can understand. When we can let go of needing to be anybody special, that we have to have it all together in some way. But it's always so inspiring for me, particularly when, I, when I'm in interviews with people and I'm listening to people. People who have, have gone through some real difficulties, you know, somebody dying in their family, working with um, a, real, a terminal illness with somebody they're very close to, or really pulling them at themselves out of some kind of drug addiction or alcohol addiction. Um, whatever their, their struggle has been, and I think, oh, they have so much to offer. They have so much that they can give to people because they've turned their lives around, they've made a change in their life, and now they can go out and help people from their own understanding. And this is so inspiring for me. I have uh, two sisters who are involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. They had a lot of difficulty growing up and getting involved in drugs and alcohol. And they're involved in this program which is based very much on that, that support, that help, that from their own place of struggle and their own place of understanding, then they start helping people who come into the program and help them along the way. But they still know that they need help. There's not a moment where they don't recognize their own helplessness and their own place where they can fall back, where they're vulnerable. But it's that very place that gives them the strength to then go out and help others from that place of vulnerability. So in a way, this, this um, idea of whether I need help or whether I'm the helper, whatever role one finds themselves in, it doesn't matter really. They're both, we both, we, we take turns. <laughs> Sometimes we're in the role of helper, and a lot of times we're in the role of the person who needs help. And so then these two identities, they just get, there's, there's no meaning around them anymore. We don't have to get, we don't actually even have to call them identities or get identified with them because they change. Sometimes we're strong, sometimes we're not so strong. For myself, I know this very, very well. I'm very much in the role of helping and caretaking for a lot of people. But unless I was also in a position of receiving help, (laughs) I couldn't do it. I also have to have my own support system, my my own group, my own people who can help lift me up when things get tough, when I get, when I'm not so strong. 
So there's no real identification with this role of helper or being a professional caretaker or support person. It's empty. It doesn't mean anything. It means we just give and take and we share, we work together, we're all helping each other, we're all teachers for each other. And so this idea of somebody special doesn't get built up. We don't put somebody on a pedestal. Oh, they're really, they've really got it together. The person's really, really far along. I wonder if everybody doesn't have their story, <laughs> doesn't have their difficulties, their dramas, their traumas. Even the, even, <laughs> I dare say, even some of the highest evolved people, because they have the capacity to open so, so much, it means they're able to take in more of the suffering. Their arms open even wider so that they have a larger, <laughs> a larger area that they're working with, so their demand on them is even, is even more. It doesn't mean that they're so free of all of this. I can think of so many examples. Thich Nhat Hanh, one of our great saints on this planet, who's a real inspiration for me. I visited him in Plum Village in his uh, community in southern France. And he works with the war refugees from Vietnam, with his people who have suffered from what happened in Vietnam in the 70s. And there are 300, 400 families who come there in the summertime, and he works with them. He listens to their stories. He listens to their, their cries, to their pains. And he tries to bring some beauty, he tries to bring some happiness to their lives. This can't be easy. <laughs> At times, I'm sure this is a great burden but he has, he's, he has such a large heart that he's able to work at this capacity. Some of us may not have that capacity, so we work at a different level. We work, we work at our capacity. We work with what's possible for us. So it's not building ourselves into something that we're not, or making ourselves something less than we are. Because either one is going to create, it's going to not make the meeting with people very clear. But when we're able to really establish some sense of where we are, acknowledge that truth of where we are, perhaps then we can we can do the things that we really want to do. We won't get so pulled down with our energy. Or if we think we're quite, we're very capable, we may start to take on too many responsibilities and then just get burned out. There's both sides of it. So somehow being able to make an honest assessment of our capabilities 
and then being able to communicate that being able to say to somebody no wait a minute I think I've taken too much on I have to pull back on some of the things I agreed to do or right now I'm feeling a bit I've got too much on my plate and I can't take anything else on somehow being able to get a sense of where we are at any given time not being afraid of how people are going to respond to that most people respond pretty easily when we're able to speak the truth and even if they can't at least we've known we've done our best we've done our best to take care of ourselves and to keep the relationship and the communication as straight as possible and we can't really do much more than that so with this inner eye the inner eye this woman refers to seeing things maybe in a little different way seeing clearly who we are that we're human beings we're human we're doing our work here we're here for some purpose and we're doing our work here and we can see with this inner eye that we are God's children that we are children of the divine if you have a problem with the word God it's so easy just to find another word <laughs> no need to get hung up on that it's just a word describing something that can't be described so people just try to find some word <laughs> it's only some word to try to try to begin to tap that that ah uh, that that source that just can't be named but then people get in all these fights and <laughs> wars start up because <laughs> they don't like the word somebody's chosen <laughs> but we can know with this inner sense that we are God's children we are children of the divine somebody reminded me today of something that I've always found quite helpful and when I go out and I'm back in the world and I have I know that I have a certain understanding and wisdom that might really be helpful for people and sometimes there can be the tendency to want to go out and wake people up <laughs> you know <laughs> like what's wrong with you can't you see <laughs> can't you see what you're doing and especially after retreats there's a lot of inspiration and a lot of excitement about what one is seeing and it's true then you will go out and you see things clearly for a while hopefully a long while <laughs> 
and especially the people who were close to you might want to say okay now I'm really going to show them I want to tell them what I see see in them what I see about them but it doesn't work (laughs) it really doesn't work somebody a while ago wrote a letter about her meeting with her family when this was going on she was trying to wake up her family but she said they hate me when I'm a Buddhist but they love me when I'm a Buddha sometimes all I do is I just remember that phrase and it really helps (laughs) I just ask myself am I trying to be a Buddhist or a Buddha (laughs) and it becomes very clear where the conflict is coming from because a Buddha I think has to do with just being simple ordinary nobody special And then something really shines. Something's revealed in that simplicity, probably without many words at all. Sometimes the words are the problem. And we've seen that so clearly here. Last night's sharing was so beautiful about the connection in the silence the communion in the silence without words that which can be touched when two people are just together and meeting quietly, silently and in some ways we can be models for this now when you're with people who are chattering, chattering, you know going on, gossiping, talking about things that don't seem very important or relevant we have a choice in a way to enter into that or not we can choose whether we want to communicate at that level or just be quiet there's something so beautiful about just being quiet (laughs) people might expect us to act in certain ways to communicate with them in certain ways but in a way I'd say that's their problem <laughs> no. in a way it's, it's keeping a sense of what's important to me keeping a sense of what feels true and honest for me and not imposing that on others but not letting others impose theirs on me either He also pointed out about security. Is there really any security? And so often I think people just take their lives for granted. As if you're going along and nothing's ever going to go wrong. Now, living rather idly and forgetting the preciousness of this life. 
in some ways forgetting the urgency. Maybe we don't have very long. We don't know. There's nothing guaranteed. The only thing guaranteed is we are going to die. That is a guarantee. The question is we just don't know when it's going to happen. <laughs> and there's no point in really going along as if it's going to happen in a long time. <laughs> because I think this is quite a deluded idea. The truth is we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. And reflecting on this can awaken a sense of urgency. Awaken a sense of urgency about what we're doing here. The purpose, the meaning of this life. And each person has to reflect on that for themselves. They have to know what is their purpose? What is your purpose, your meaning? Do you feel this sense of urgency? Or are you waiting? Are you postponing? Are you taking this life for granted? Because it's a very precious life. And a lot can happen here. A lot of discovery, a lot of insight, a lot of possibility for helping other beings. So we have a lot of work to do, really. I'm always inspired by the Tibetan Lamas, the very enlightened Tibetan Lamas, because they are so humble. And they say, I was just reading this book today from Dilga Kensei Rinpoche, who died last year, but one of the, the, he was considered a Buddha. And he says, in his book, he says, for those of us who still have simple minds, (laughs) or those of us who still have a lot of work to do, including himself in that, you know, including us who still have not seen the whole picture. (laughs) You know, and that just, my mind just boggles. I think, wow. (laughs) If he's saying that about his own mind, (laughs) there must be a lot to see. And so there isn't any sense of end. There's any end in this. For, the, for that tradition, for the Mahayana tradition, they say the work starts at enlightenment. That once one can see the truth of who they are, then they can start doing the work that needs to be done. Because then there's clarity in the mind. But before that, we have to just work with all this delusion, these obscurations in the mind. That, that's the work that has to be done. But once there's clarity, and then we can we see we see in a correct way, then we really can refine our minds. Then we can really start to serve the people on this planet. It's very inspiring. 
So there's not so there's not an end really. It's really not a sense of where we have to get somewhere, and then we can rest. I had that idea for a long time. Meditate, 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 so I'd get enlightened, and then I wouldn't have anything to do anymore. <laughs> Somehow I don't think it's that way. My view has changed. <laughs> And in a way, that, that has given me now a sense of relaxation because I don't feel like effort, 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 effort. <laughs> Have enlightenment happen. Nobody agrees on what enlightenment is anyhow. So even if it happened, <laughs> there would be very little agreement about whether it did happen or what, very little um, <laughs> sense of, of um, somebody saying, oh yeah, now you're enlightened. Because surely somebody else would say, no, that's not enlightenment. There's all kinds of controversy about it, which is just perfect. (laughs) How could it be anything? (laughs) How could it have any particular characteristics? How could the enlightened mind, the free mind, have any, how can we describe this? How could we say, yeah, this is it, when it's not an it? So how would we know it (laughs) when it came? So it does make us question what we're doing in terms of our meditation. So we just keep being mindful, being present, being aware, and we see what happens. We see what we wake up into. We just keep waking up into something. And then the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. But we don't know where we're going. (laughs) We don't really know what we're doing. But we just keep moving forward, trying not to get stuck anywhere. Trying not to let the old habits, the fears, the depressions, the worry, pull us back, pull us down. All we know is we need to keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. And then we see where we're moving to, and then that changes. And then we move somewhere else, and that changes. <laughs> and this is how it goes. We don't really have to know where we're going. I think that's enough words for tonight and for this retreat, probably. (laughs) Let's sit quietly for a while. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.